Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I had attempted to take my life. I did not want to be on this earth. I, I could not function without alcohol and drugs. The 12 steps saved my life, but it didn't stop my depression. I recovered slowly, very, very slowly, and the depression lifted. I'm not ashamed of it. I know that so many more people need to hear that that's kind of normal, that when you give up drugs and alcohol and you're left with your own thoughts, which is a very scary place, that we could use some outside help. My guest today is named Sharon Feckety. She is the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health, and she also has a podcast by the same name. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Brett. I'm Sharon Feckety, and I am the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health and a sober woman of 28 years. Awesome. I'm so glad to have you on the show today, and I'm looking forward to this conversation, looking forward to hearing more about the book and the podcast and all the different things you're working on. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could kind of start off by telling us a little bit about the journey, how you got the time you have, what it was like before you found recovery, and just kind of walk us through your story. Sure. So um, my experience, Strength and Hope, sounds familiar. I grew up in Long Island, New York. I don't have too harsh of an accent because my parents are from Dublin, Ireland. We all just returned from Dublin. My dad turned 80. I turned 50 and uh, took my husband for the first time. So we went back to our roots, got to show my husband where my family came from, which was really nice. And um, come from a very large, typical Irish Catholic family. Went to private school, hated it, rebelled, um, was a very athletic young lady uh, in the beginning, uh, was involved in all kinds of sports, uh, happy, semi-normal, um, adolescence hit like it does to all of us. And uh, things got a little strange. I started getting very self-conscious of how I looked. Uh, I was chubby. A teenager, I had really bad acne and became more and more self-conscious. And my self-esteem went from somebody who was very outgoing and uh, excited about life to uh, somebody who just needed to drink in order to feel a part of. You know, it was innocent, like it happens to to many of us on the journey of recovery to recovered 
it started pretty innocent. And there is a real thing about progression and this being a disease. I definitely did not think when uh, the family intervention happened at 18, uh, when I came home drunk, of course, that uh, a rehab was actually necessary. But I was willing and able to go away to what I referred to as a day camp because it was all adolescence. They were all just like me. I was 18 years old. There were people that were uh, teenagers, and uh, I thought I found my people. But I certainly had no desire to stop drinking because I really thought everybody else thought I had a problem except for me. So, uh, you know, picked up again. As soon as I got out, I followed some guy who didn't invite me. Seemed to be the uh, story of my life. From the beginning, a blackout drinker. Uh, If I wasn't drinking beer, I was blacked out. So beer was how it always started. And then as soon as hard liquor came into play, I don't remember much of anything. So I stayed in a blackout for most of my teenage years and um, got arrested when I was 19. And then I was, and it's not even a good enough story, Brett, to be honest with you, to tell. It's like so boring and stupid. But um, I did get arrested. And then I was mandated to go to my second rehab, um, along with a halfway house after. And now I'm, you know, I'm 19. Maybe I have a problem because this is rehab number two, but not really sure about that. I got to this rehab and, you know, I started listening a little bit more, but I don't think I was ready, like many of us at that age. They told me I was mandated to this halfway house when I was in the rehab, which was a good idea because I certainly didn't have any time in my life with nothing going on to spend three months in a halfway house. So uh, I went to this halfway house in Poughkeepsie, New York, they called it. Um, I did not think I was like any of the people that were there. A lot of them had been addicted to um, crack and heroin and were homeless. And one girl had AIDS. And and I remember telling the um, on-site counselor that I was from a residential area and that I wasn't like these people. And I don't even know what the hell I meant by that, but that's what I told her. And she said, well, you know, you continue on this path and for sure you will be just like them. So, of course, I left against medical advice and I would have rather gone to jail because I was mandated, remember, um, than to be there with those people (laughs) that were not from what I thought was a residential community. (laughs) You know, uh, it was at the same time that I started suffering from depression and my parents, um, after my first rehab, had started going to. Um, the other side, the dark side, Al-Anon. And they were practicing like tough love and they had let me spend the, that night in jail and they had this support. And by the time I went to my second, they weren't doing that anymore. So they came and picked me up, which I'm sure they didn't think was an issue then. And obviously not their fault, but picked me up from this rehab, uh, this halfway house. And I came back home and I probably went to a few meetings. I know I had said in a courtroom that I would go to uh, 12-step recovery meetings for the rest of my life, but I picked up again. And this is where that progression comes in. You know, I probably blacked out while in Manhattan because that's where I was hanging out at a place called Cocktails. I was very young. They were a lot older. 
And I was taught how to like shoot pool and I loved it. And then I guess in a blackout, a man by the name of Spokane, which I don't think was his actual name, was probably his alias. I thought it was a nickname, you know? I didn't realize it was Spokane, Washington. And I still think to this day I say it wrong because I've never been there. But he must have asked me if I wanted to go to Detroit, Michigan. And in a blackout, I must have said yes, because I woke up there and ended up staying there for almost three years. So homeless, addicted, abused, a lot of bad stuff. But I never wanted to go back to that depressive state that I started to uh, feel when I came out of that second rehab. I had attempted to take my life. I did not want to be on this earth. I, I could not function without alcohol and drugs. It's obvious to me now that that's why I did them, because I didn't like how I felt, and I didn't like who I was. And I needed medicine to get out of that. And my medicine at that time was alcohol and drugs. So after Spokane, I met Bear, full name Sugar Bear, <laughs> another alias. <laughs> Brett, this was my life. He had just gotten out of Jackson State Penitentiary after doing 11 years. He was a kingpin drug dealer. I did not know what that meant, but I was oddly attracted to it because, you know, I came from this very nice home in Long Island, New York. I went to private school. I have, my parents are still married. They live 1.2 miles away from me. I have two brothers. You know, there was really no reason for me to um, want to get away from these people uh, so badly, but um I was uh, abused terribly by this man. I was bartending at a place called Brent's, and on the sign outside, it said, where the friendly people meet. <laughs> they all had aliases, too. And I, I didn't realize, you know, because I was in a blackout all the time that I was in one of, like, the worst crime cities in the world. And I was fine with it because nobody there knew I had this problem with alcohol and drugs. Well, they knew, right? <laughs> but they had the same problem. So headed back home. Um, my parents had hired a private investigator. Not that they found me, but they had sent enough plane tickets. I would call them randomly when I needed something, of course, money. And they had sent me a Greyhound bus ticket. And uh, after my love had beaten me for the last time, he dropped me off at this bar. And the bartender gave me a beer with a straw in it, which was um, really monumental for me in my story, because you know, alcoholics will try to love you back to health. And that was the love that they were showing for me that day. And that was really the last straw I got um, on the bus, a Greyhound bus. And after being on a Greyhound bus next to a very smelly man for 10 hours, gives you an opportunity to talk about, think about your life and um, how you're 21 years old and just becoming legal to drink and your life is a mess. And, um, Came home to my parents' house in New York and was in my bedroom, just uh, depressed. Everybody was just happy I was home. So they all walked around on eggshells, not bringing up anything, just glad that I was alive. To this day, they still refer to it as when Sharon was away, putting up the bunny ears. They never even said Detroit, Michigan, because it was so traumatic for the whole family to think that I was dead. They would get phone calls um, every time I identification was found in a dumpster. Of course, they would think that I was dead. So it wasn't great times for them. 
but they were lighting up candles from Ireland to New York. And uh, I made it back and went through a very, very difficult depression and was planning my, my suicide, a lot of my recovery in the beginning. And then I, I went on to uh, my dad's EAP counselor, which I'd like to, you know, talk about maybe the the mental health portion of my recovery because that's a, a very large piece of my story today. Yeah, and I think that that's an important thing to talk about as well because I think a lot of us go through that depression in the beginning of our recovery because all of a sudden the substances that we were using that were giving us the dopamine and the serotonin and all that we cut that out now it's like what do I do with my life? I, and I even had that idea in the beginning of like, what, what is left to do? I've lived this life of quote unquote adventure. Like I've put myself in all these crazy situations and been through, you know, all kinds of stuff in my addiction. What do I do now? Life is going to be so boring. What's left, you know? Uh, and, and yeah, I, I went through that depression as well. Cause I, I had to move back in with my parents and I was 21, 22. And it's like, I don't want to be back at my parents' house. I don't want to do, I don't want to be under their roof. I don't want to be under their rules. I, you know, I, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it's a tough time. And I think more people are, um, more people have gone through the same thing as us. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about. So I appreciate the opportunity to to discuss that. So um, my father worked for New York Hospital, and uh, he had worked there for 44 years. And while I was away, he had been seeing his EAP counselor, employee assistance program. His name was Ben, in which I wrote an entire chapter about. My dad said, you know, I really think that you will like him. My father and I are a lot alike. We're suspicious of everybody, basically. And I figured if if he sniffed him out and could trust him and uh, talk to him, then maybe I'd give him a try. So I used to take um, the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan every Tuesday and talk to Ben. And Ben asked me, Ben was also in recovery, so that's really important that I, I share that. I, d- I don't think any of the people in my rehabs or in recovery had ever disclosed themselves to me, so I didn't trust them, so I didn't tell them everything. I would just tell Ben, listen, if you put me in a straitjacket and just took me to the white padded room, I'd be totally cool with that because I'm not going to feel good again. Like I don't want to be here. And he asked me um, that very important question, was I having suicidal thoughts? And I said, yes, for the first time. And that was like the end of isolation for me. I was able to then open up and get the help that I needed, got hooked up with the psychiatrist, was put on 20 milligrams of Prozac. Um, I think just the the thought that I was going to have something inside my brain that was going to help me, uh, helped me immediately. And uh, I haven't taken an antidepressant or anything since. Um, Not to say that I don't fully believe. Obviously, it saved my life. But um, I no longer believe the story that I was told, which is that I had a chemical imbalance, which I think we're all told, that we have a chemical imbalance and you just need something to help you adjust. Well, if that was the case, I would still need that today. And it only took six months. But I had like a team, you know, I had recovery. I had my family, I had love, I had support, I didn't have any pressure, and I had Ben 
didn't really care to even mention a, a higher source because I wasn't really thrilled with that dude. So I recovered slowly, very, very slowly, and the depression lifted. And, you know, um, I speak about it as much as I can today because I know the founder of this 12-step recovery group that I belong to suffered from depression. And so many people suffer from depression that um, I'm not ashamed of it. I know that so many more people need to hear that that's kind of normal, that when you give up drugs and alcohol and you're left with your own thoughts, which is a very scary place, that we could use some outside help. So I'm very grateful that I had Ben and that I had these outside sources to help me through the hardest time in my life. Mm, yeah. I love what you shared. And I think it's so important that you're talking about the the depression side of things, because I think a lot of us do struggle with that. And I also love the point that you brought up about having that outside help, because I think for me in the beginning, I thought that everything I needed was in that 12 step fellowship. And I didn't understand that there were outside issues. And I think I probably could have benefited from going to get some outside help in the beginning. But I, I kind of had that delusion of like everything I need is right here. As long as I keep going to meetings and I get a sponsor and I work the steps and I do all that, like everything will eventually fall into place. But I think it would have been a lot more pleasant and maybe a little bit more successful if I had had some outside help in the beginning. Yeah. You know, but I think we're also told that too, that that's all we need. Mm -hmm. Listen, there's no blame, right? Like I only understand all of this you know, 28 years later, I certainly thought, okay, well, now I just have to focus on the solution. I don't have to think about all of the unbelievable trauma that I endured, which is what I relate my depression to today. Of course, I was depressed. I was beat up. I was homeless. I, I lived in a different state. I was freaking cold. It's cold in Detroit. Maybe one of the reasons I live in Florida today. But, you know, I, I, I understand it now more, but I would have never gotten to this place of speaking so openly about it if I didn't, um, at 25 years sober, just make a decision that, you know what, it's not even people inside of my recovery spaces that won't normalize this conversation. It's outside too, more outside than anything, right? When the, in, the, in the normie life, in real life, in business life. So I made that decision that I was going to recover out loud, like your sign says behind you. Because of course, like I got a lot of shit too. Like you don't talk about this stuff outside of the rooms, you know, don't write that book. Don't, 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 don't. But I know that if somebody told their story <laughs> the way I do today and talked about depression and, and getting help outside and it's okay. and not feeling so isolated. Maybe I would have, you know, recovered sooner or, or who knows what could happen. I'm I'm grateful for how it happened today, but I'm also not shy about talking about how we need to incorporate this more um, into all our recovery rooms. You know, they have uh, a new pamphlet now. It came out in 2018 called A for Alcoholics with Mental Health Issues. When my friend Nancy told me about it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, there's there's literature. So now I can I can reference something fantastic. <laughs> uh, on Halloween, there was a deadline for submission for one of the stories in the um the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and of course I waited because I'm a procrastinating alcoholic. <laughs> I waited till the day that it was due 
to write 3,500 words, but I wanted to be sure that I was able to talk about how the 12 steps saved my life, but it didn't stop my depression. I've listened to your show and it's wonderful that you interview people from all walks of life and all different spaces of recovery. I know what works for me and I don't care what works for anybody else as long as somebody's getting some kind of help. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I think that it that's part of the reason that I want to showcase people that are in different, different modalities of recovery. I think it's so important though for us to find what works for us. Mm-hmm. And even for me in the beginning, I didn't even know any of these other fellowships existed. I knew 12 step and that was all that I knew. Me too. And it worked for me, mm-hmm. but it might not work for you. So you know, I, I I just want recovery to be available for everyone. And if if twelve step doesn't doesn't fit with you, maybe you can find another program that does. And that's what's important at the end of the day. And talking about talking about our struggles and being open, being able to talk about having depression. I, I think it's so so vital to to be willing to have those conversations because I think even in the rooms of recovery at times we can think I'm the only one that's struggling with the with depression. I'm the only one that feels these feelings. Because we're all there talking about recovery and focusing on that, but at the end of the day, like we're not alone. We mm-hmm. we, it's so strange how we can be in that twelve step room and be with people that are just like us, but still feel like this one part is different than you right. know nobody else will understand. Yeah, I don't I don't know why we have that mindset, but I f- I feel like a lot of us do. Yeah, and I every time I remember the first time I shared that I had depression in my early twenties in a in a room. And nobody said anything to me, you know, mm. <laughs> which I was like, oh, my God, I'll never do that again. But this guy, um, Mickey Diamond, and of course, he talked like this. And he had a cigarette coming out of his mouth. And he was like, Sharon, Bill Wilson suffered from depression, <laughs> the founder of this program. And really, that to me was so vital because I think and he talks about it in his writing that um, that one day he hopes that this will evolve. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that we we start talking more about you know emotional uh, sobriety and that we start giving an outlet for people that do suffer from other ailments because there are many you know I don't think anybody woke up and said you know what I think I'm going to be a crackhead and uh, blackout move to Detroit Michigan uh, nope didn't expect that to happen didn't expect to become depressed and it's not because of where I come from. It has nothing to do with my parents. You know, it only has to do with like, this is me. And, um, and I need to get somebody outside of the 12 step recovery rooms to help me navigate through life. Yeah, I I totally agree. I would love if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about the book where, where people can find it, what inspired you to, to write the book and, it's kind of what that moment was that you decided I need to put this story down on paper. I need to share this. I need to recover out loud. Mm, thank you for asking. So I've been very fortunate now in recovery. I, in my twenties when the depression lifted and I started feeling myself again, <laughs> I started getting really great jobs. I became the director of operations for a big medical company in New York. and then decided after being in a very toxic relationship, my boyfriend had a girlfriend. It's a chapter in my book. I thought, you know what? I I really 
have survived so much and I've always wanted to live in Florida. So I'm going to, I'm going to move there. I was like in my early thirties and I thought if I didn't like it, I'll just come back. I think the wonderful thing about sobriety and recovery is that when you've gone through so much adversity, not too much scares you anymore. So I figured, you know, no biggie. I'll just come back. if I hate it. And everybody told me, of course, I would never make it in Florida. And um, I moved here alone, didn't know anybody. And I spent two years by myself, meaning, you know, like just single and trying to figure out why even in sobriety, I was attracting toxic friendships, workplaces, relationships. Like I'm supposed to be like sober, you know, like I got double digits now. What's going on? And um, what I found is that the problem was me. And that was unfortunate for me to hear. But I really had some wonderful teachers in recovery. Um, I hadn't done any of the step work, the real work for the first five years of my sobriety. And thankfully, somebody asked me how long I wanted to stay sick in the program. And then I started going to big book studies and I really started doing the work on myself. And I still go to this day. You know, I am recovered. You know, I've heard a lot of stuff about that too. Um, it's it's in the book, like the actual instruction manual of our book talks about how we recover. And what happened was I was here for a few years and I ran a, a medical practice for eight years. I made more money than I ever made in New York. I um, met my husband, uh, got married. I was on Say Yes to the Dress, that damn show. Um, you know, things really started going well. <laughs> And I thought, well, let's step out again. And I opened my own business um, 10 years ago. I've been consulting for doctors for a long time, which is crazy, right? Because like, there's a chapter in my book called I Smoked Crack. And I purposely did that because I never want to... Well, there's a, a whole thing, right? Like I remember when I was first telling my story, I used to tell people I did cocaine because it didn't sound as bad as smoking crack. I also used to tell people that I wasn't homeless, that I used to spend time on friends' couches. No, you don't have an address, means you're homeless. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to be very bold in my delivery because I think a lot of the shame that I had been through was still living inside of me, even though I had, you know, become quote unquote successful in business and being a, a woman that owns uh, her own business. And four years ago, I opened a second business and blah, blah, blah. August 11th, 1994 was my last drink, which it's my mother's birthday. And I, I ride my bike a lot. I'm a, a bike enthusiast, bicycle, like I don't ride a Harley, wouldn't know how to do that. But I was riding my bike a lot. And I just kept thinking about all of the people, all of the professionals, all of the executives that were in my life that didn't know anything about my prior life, but were really opening up about themselves and their own traumas to me, because I would be very open with them if it was one-on-one. -on -one. And I couldn't believe how many people that were, you know, doctors, lawyers, executives that didn't know all of the resources that we have for free, you know, every day, even running a, a medical office, a pediatric office for a long time here, the doctors would come to me and say, Hey, you know, we got this family and they have this kid and like, which rehab should we send them to? I'm like, well, you know, maybe we could think about saving them some money and just sending them to this free meeting first. You know, all these resources were so unheard of because they don't teach any of this stuff in med school. So I just um, 
started listening. I call it listening to the whispers. I was just being pulled into to talking about it. And um, I wrote my book in five days because I wanted to get it over with. And there's no magic to like how to write a book. It's just like you do it. Kind of like I did that submission for the big book. I put a deadline on my calendar and I was like, okay, you got to do it. And what happened was amazing. You know, like all of the, nobody could believe that I had smoked crack and was homeless in Michigan, which I loved, you know, I was like, yep. And you pay me doctor. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like we do recover. We, we can be depressed and suicidal and addicted and, and we can flourish. We can, we can win woman of the year, which I won last night, which is batshit crazy. So since then, that was 2019 that I released the book, August 11, 2019, um, pandemic hits. I started um, speaking in corporate about mental health in the workplace because I've been a boss and not my own business owner. And I've seen some really, really bad things in the medical industry. It's really great things and some really, really bad things and how employees are treated and how mental health does not have a space in the workplace. And everybody dresses it up and they call it mental wellness or let's have a wellness day or a wellness week, you know, let's bring in a nutritionist and all that crap. And I started going in and and really having some strong conversations about my own story and then how I was able to be um, an empathetic boss throughout my career because of my own story. It's a wonderful thing when you get sober, the judgments just go away. Like I can look at a person that is homeless today and know that that should be me. Like that blows my mind, but that is the truth. That was me. Yeah. So I I wrote the book and then the pandemic hit and uh, now we're kind of thrusted back into more of a, I don't know, reality. And I, I still get to talk about mental health in the workplace. And I, I believe that the reason that I, I even won that award last night was because I talk so openly about it especially in places outside of recovery rooms now. And and so then you've you've also taken the book and then continued that with the podcast, is that correct? Yeah, The Broken Road to Mental Health is a podcast every Wednesday. So, I just wanted to continue the conversation and um I've been able to obtain really great sponsors, drug and alcohol attorneys or you know, I needed a drug and alcohol attorney and it's great that I can have people support the show come on the show, tell their stories and and people don't feel so alone. It's really um been wonderful. It's very therapeutic. I don't know, Brad, I'm going to just assume it feels the same for you. Like the conversations that I get to have on these podcasts are everything. I'm really grateful to have a space to be able to do that so people don't feel so isolated. I agree a thousand percent. I look forward to doing these interviews every week. And this is one of the the highlights of my week is getting to have these conversations. And it's definitely very, very therapeutic. So I I agree with you. Yeah, it's a blessing. It really is. You know, because we do recover. It's miracles that you and I are even talking with microphones that we could even afford to buy one. I couldn't even even imagined like having a microphone and a computer and a room that I have semi-dedicated to the podcast it's it's the guest bedroom but i mean i love it a guest bedroom i can remember not even having a bedroom so like what yeah it's a miracle it is right and there's so many people when they come in they don't 
think I remember, and I share about this in my book. I used to ask Ben every time I went to see him at therapy, I used to uh, just feel so dark, you know? And and he would tell me that one day I was going to be able to open the blinds in my bedroom and feel good again. Because I always wanted it to be dark. And I'm looking at my blinds right now and they're always open. And this, I'm living in the damn sunshine state, you know? <laughs> if that doesn't scream, we do recover. Like we do recover and 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 life gets better, but it's a bitch in the beginning. It's hard. And we have to do a lot of hard work on ourselves. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, Sharon, we're getting towards the end of the time. So I would love if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners if they're interested in the book or the podcast, where can they find that? And and maybe any kind of social media or website that you have, if you could share that with us, that'd be awesome. Sure. So it's on Amazon, you know, like where else would it be? You can have it in your driveway today, or you could just listen to it on Audible. So, um, and the podcast is The Broken Road to Mental Health. I'm always uh, happy to have people come on and, and share their story. Um, I don't always like to have professionals come in and tell how we should um, recover. I'd much prefer to have somebody who actually lives it and has that lived experience. So I appreciate the opportunity, Brett. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. And thank you for coming on and, and sharing so openly about depression. And I think that that's such an important conversation to have because I know a lot of people are suffering with that in silence and feel like they're alone. And it's it's so great to hear other people say, I, I'm suffering with that too. You're not alone. And, and it's possible to get through that and, and to have this successful, happy life, be woman of the year. I mean, oh come on. It's incredible. It is. We have to celebrate our wins. That's what my friends keep saying. Like you have to celebrate. You have to tell people about it because you were like homeless and addicted to crack, girl. <laughs> so yeah, we have to celebrate our wins too. Thank you, Brett. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. If you guys are interested in finding out more information about her book or her podcast, The Broken Road to Mental Health, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.